Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. And Christian, it is our first recording of 2023. Happy New Year, my friend. I invited you to come see a movie with me yesterday, and you resp- your response was, I'm not interested. Happy New Year. That may or may not be true. The listeners don't need to know about our domestic drama behind the scenes. But we made it. Another new calendar year. New opportunities to disappoint Christian and decline his invitations. But either way, we made it. How are you, how are you feeling about the new year? Um... I don't know. It hasn't sunk in yet. I think I'm still writing 22 on stuff, but I think that's okay considering it's only January 3rd. It is. It is only January 3rd at the time of this recording. I'd like to wish a big happy birthday to my sister Sarah, where wherever she is in the world right now, which want, is Ohio. I want to wish a big happy birthday to Noah Khan, whose birthday was on January 1st. Good job, Noah. Stick season, one of the songs of 2022 for sure. Thanks for your, your hard work and dedication. And uh, hopefully the rest of your music down the road. Anyway, we're not here to talk about music. We're not here to talk about 2023, actually, because we're here to talk about the best movies of 2022, as it is time for our annual tradition of kicking off the new year by looking back and sharing our top 10 of the previous year. And I got to say, Christian, there were some movies for me that were just no-brainers on this list. But I think maybe the bottom half, the 5 through 10, took some thought in trying to organize what did I actually want to put on this list and what did I want to bump to the 11 through 20s, the honorable mentions. What about you? Was this a bunch of slam dunks or did you have to do some thinking? There are three movies on this list that I wanted to go to bat for. And then I realized there weren't any other movies in this list that I wanted to go to bat for. And and it's not like a... um, I, I've said that I, I don't think this is a particularly strong movie here. I maintain that. It, it, it just became, when making this list, what are movies that I had a good time watching? I, I, I don't know. I feel like in previous years, I very much went down to the minutia of, man, do I like Sound of Metal more? Do I like Minari more? Like, what's going on? And here it's like, a, I don't, I didn't get that. And I think that does kind of describe a, though I had a good time with the theater, I'm not like breaking down movies so i don't know what that says oh it says either but i i think in some ways i'm with you and that there were a lot of really good theater experiences this year but i think i disagree and that i think this is actually a pretty solid movie year and maybe there's not a ton at the top although there's still some major movies i did miss and i'm still sad about there's a really healthy i did not watch decision to leave I want people to know, if you don't know what that movie is, it's a South Korean movie that will surely be competing for Best International Film at the Oscars. And it's gotten rave reviews, people say it's Hitchcockian, and I had like three days possibly where I could have watched it, and I said, I don't want to catch up on more 2022 movies, I want to leave, that's a thing of the past. Tisk tisk, Christian. Did you catch up on it? You'll have to find out. <laughs> okay. We have mystery lists to share, folks. <laughs> but I think this year had a healthy midsection, just looking at... The movies that I reviewed on Letterboxd, I had a lot of four-star movies, and I had a lot of three-and-a-half-star movies, and even a good deal of three-stars as well. So a lot that I liked, and I think my 11 through 20 might be a little healthier than my 1 through 10 in some ways, just because there were so many competing to be in that top portion of the year. But like you said, in terms of movies that I really love and I really feel like I would return to down the Mm -hmm. road, it was a little bit harder to form that top 10, but there were a few clear options for me. 
I also did more rewatching this year, I feel like. With quite a few of the movies on my list, I was able to see them a second time. Some in theaters, some at home later on in the year. And felt great about that, just in terms of solidifying some of my choices. Knowing I wasn't just reacting to a first-time watch. Got to do some second-time watches and confirm my feelings, so I feel great about that. Let's get into our list. Let's... Yes, let's get, let's get into our list. Let's do it. So... For folks who do not recall how this particular show recounts its top 10s, we will go back and forth. So we'll share my 10, Christian's 10, my 9, Christian's 9. If ever we do come up onto a movie that is shared on both of our lists, we'll try to skip it when it's on the uh, when it's on a list where someone has ranked it lower till we can get to the higher ranking for the other person. But we'll do our best. I don't think we have a ton of crossover in this list, Christian. And we actually, here's a little tease for you listeners, have a movie within our top fives that we ranked in the exact same spot, which I'm very excited to get to. Uh, yes, I, I, I will say we came in with a predisposition for that movie. We did. We did indeed. <laughs> and I can't wait to talk about it with you. All right. We also have our 11 through 20s, and we'll probably throw some even more honorable mentions, so stick around for that. But for now, is it time to start with my number 10, Christian? Are we, are we not doing... Do we not start with the 20 to 11? Um, we don't really do. I was thinking we could we could stash it to the back this year, but do you want to start with it now? Uh, let's start with it now to just get, like, a bunch of movies out there. Let's do it. So, 20 through 11, we'll just do rapid fire, maybe a quick thought or two on these movies. But, Christian, I will turn it over to you. Kick us off with your number 20. So, my number 20 is Emergency, screenplay by K.D. Davila, directed by Carrie Williams, which is a wonderful, just comedy drama let's make sure that this white girl who passed out in a black house is brought to the right places and people don't accuse the wrong people just wonderfully thrilling and also has you on the edge of your seat so so often at my number 19 i have after yang one of three colin farrell performances on here that has an incredible use of CGI and contemplation of what humanity means. At number 18, I have Navalny, which is a um, documentary on the on, on Navalny himself, who is, you know, fighting for rights in Russia and has been imprisoned um, unfairly and keeps getting years added onto a sentence. And it's something that you can't believe got caught on camera of, like, the death attempts against him and the attempts to arrest him. At number 17, I have Disenchanted because Amy Adams is back and I loved her. And this I just found to be one of the most enjoyable. Let me sit down here because it's the holidays and watch Maya Rudolph and Amy Adams go at it in a franchise that I didn't know I wanted back. At 16, I have She Said, um, which is a uh, rendering of the New York Times columnists who broke the story on the Harvey Weinstein scandal and were able to interview many of his victims. I think harrowing and also anchored by an incredible performance um, from Carrie Mulligan and... Zoe Kazan. Zoe Kazan. Uh, at 15, I have The Banshees Vinny Sherum, the second of the three Colin Farrell performances I have on my list. He had quite a year. Um, fantastic romance movie, honestly, and wonderful, wonderful view of the extent to which you lose things for art or don't want to lose things for art. At number 14, 13 Lives, the third of the uh, Colin Farrell performances I have on here, but wonderful recreation of the Tithe Cave Rescue and a how a Tithe uh, school soccer 
club got trapped in underground caves and of the like national effort to go into those caves and find and do dives and get and they got every single one of those children out safely it, it, it just makes you feel good it's what one of the best docudramas does really in unity and not necessarily on being bogged down by specifics at number 13 i have armageddon time basically a coming of age story based on james gray's own life who is the writer and director here that makes you understand not a single character in this movie is in the right or wrong every single one of them is in various moral shades and so do you blame the people or do you blame the situation that they're in at 12 i have bell which is a fantastic just animated movie retelling of the beauty and the beast story but set in virtual reality uh, at 11 i have fresh mimi k's directorial debut with a quite gob smacking legitimately approach to direction which makes me just much more excited on since she did cannibals in this movie what horror themed thing will she turn to next yeah those are my 22 alone and for me, my number 20 is Jackass Forever. The return to Jackassery from Johnny Knoxville, Steve-O, and the gang. Once again, directed by Jeff Tremaine. Just a hilarious movie, especially if you are a fan of Jackass, which I can't really consider myself a fan, because I only knew of them a little bit growing up. I definitely was not allowed to watch that show, let alone MTV itself. But I, only, I watched one of the movies with friends in high school, and then watched the original earlier this year and hanging out with these guys as they do the most ridiculous stunts or pranks is one of the best times you can have at the movies. So I wanted to slide that onto the list there. Number 19, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, the animated and partial live action film from Dean Fleischer Camp. Of course, key collaborator being Jenny Slate, the voice of Marcel the Shell. One of the warmest and loveliest movies I saw this year. I keep telling people that if you had told me the most moving death of a character in film in 2022 would come from Marcel the Shell with shoes on, I would have thought you were lying. But ultimately, you would be completely correct. Number 18 was The Woman King, Gina Brintz by the Woods. Dramatic, historic uh, fiction about... Uh, the women warriors of uh, the kingdom of Dahomey back in the 18, 17 1700s. Just a totally crowd-pleasing action historical epic in the vein of movies like Braveheart and Gladiator, which a lot of people have made comparisons to. But it's, of course, it's centered on this awesome Viola Davis performance, but also allows Tuso Mbedo, who's the... She's the younger, one of the younger actresses, but really the star of the movie. It allows her to really break through and shine in an awesome breakout performance. Number 17, I had Barbarian, which is maybe the scariest movie I saw this year, while also still being a, a well-told and engaging story. Zach Kreger there, who is known most for comedy. Uh, he was in The Whitest Kids You Know, which is a sketch group in the, in the mid-2000s. But he comes back to movies in the directorial chair to make a horror movie, and I definitely can't wait to see what he does next. At number 16, I had Emergency as well. So, Christian, you already said all the nice things about that movie that need to be said. But, yeah, just a very much a fun movie, but also one that can go from fun to tense on a dime. And it maintains those tonal shifts very well. At number 15, I had RRR, SS Rajamuli's epic about two freedom fighters in India with uh, different approaches to uh, overthrowing the British government at the time. Just... Simply, some of the most ridiculous and fun action scenes of the year. 
and it was an undeniable to put on this list after I had seen it. At number 14, I had Apollo 10 and a half, Richard Linklater's nostalgic animated look back at his life growing up in Texas during the space race in the late 60s. Uh, again, this is a movie where I feel like it'd be totally easy just to dislike it. It's, it's definitely a little bit locked into his perspective as a you know suburban white kid growing up and when he did, but a movie that, again, made me feel so warm and fuzzy inside. There's got this, he's got this awesome narration from Jack Black as uh, his internal dialogue as a child, and it mixes in a little bit of fantasy with this otherwise retelling of his childhood, although the character, of course, is not named Richard or anything like that, but just a, a movie that really surprised me and how much I enjoyed it. At number 13, I had Ambulance, Michael Bay's Return to Cinemas, <laughs> a movie that I watched on Prime Video and really wished that I had gone to see in theaters. Uh, just a wild performance from Jake Gyllenhaal, who must have been snorting a line of coke every between takes. And, and that's uh, most Jake Gyllenhaal performances. Not not always. This is truly not in this in this era of Jake. This Gyllenhaal. is he is truly wackadoodle here. He's really losing it, and it's amazing to watch. Yaya Abdul Mateen as his adoptive brother, who's much more even keeled, but as the two brothers who, after a bank robbery goes wrong, end up hijacking an ambulance with. And paramedic on it as well as a cop that they shot and he is bleeding out and they have to figure out how to keep this guy alive while escaping the situation it is very very tense and just a really incredible action movie to boot with some truly crazy stunts that bay and crew pull off and at number 12 i had the fablemans steven spielberg's uh, story about his life a lot of looking back from directors this year as you can tell but I thought this was one of the most effective approaches to it, as he looks back at the period in his life leading up to and shortly after his parents' divorce. I, I, I think there's a chance we'll get to talk about this more, so I'm going to save some thoughts uh, for a little bit down the road. And 11, I had Glass Onion, the most recent Knives Out mystery I got to see in theaters and at home, thanks to living in L.A. here. And again, maybe a slight drop-off from the first movie, which was my uh, number 10 of that year, and, and then dropped down a little bit once we got into some other movies, or I watched some other movies. But even so, just a really fun mystery. I think Ryan Johnson is one of the best doing it right now. And just so many ridiculously fun performances. I, I think Kate Hudson steals the show, and she's someone who I don't think I had even seen one of her romantic comedies from earlier in her career, so almost completely unfamiliar with her, and she made me laugh so much. But just uh, another great Daniel Craig performance in the center there, as well as Janelle Monet sort of taking over the Ana de Armas role from the first movie. So just a blast, and wanted to, wanted to give some love to Glass Onion. But that is my 20 through 11. I, I think that Glass Onion's probably, if this is my top 20, Glass Onion's probably my 21. So that's, yeah, also, I was in Anchorage, didn't know what to do one night, so I just watched Ambulance. Nice. Yeah. Where'd he go? It was my, my Alaska movie. Yeah. We have much to discuss. We do have much to discuss. So let's start off with your number 10. We're going to do it, Christian. Uh, first, if, you want, if you're going to say one thing about my 2311, I have to say, Disenchanted was dis disappointing. Am I right, folks? A... Yeah, Christian? Not feeling that? <laughs> I can Remember do a whole podcast you... about how I dislike Disenchanted, but... <laughs> oh, just wait till we get a movie here you dislike way more than Disenchanted. Yeah, I know. Number 10 for me, I told you it was my mystery entry, and 
It's because I watched this movie yesterday. I watched it last night, in fact. I stood up until 2 in the morning watching this movie, and we're recording this episode. It's currently 8 a.m., so turd. I got here before that, as you could imagine, listeners, to not only start recording, but settle in. So I'm not operating on a lot of sleep, but it's because I knew I couldn't make this list if I did not watch Decision to Leave, a movie that you did not get to, apparently, Christian. But I have to say, Decision to Leave, directed by Park Chan-wook, his, uh, his new release this year, was a movie that even though I was fighting to stay awake at times because I was like, why am I doing this? I'm, so, I'm still so glad that I did. Decision to Leave follows Hei Jun, who's a detective who is suffering with a little bit of insomnia. He is very dedicated to his cases. He works in a variety. I'm not sure if this is how all Korean police departments work, but he works in a variety of cases, but murders are the ones that really get his mind moving and he feels driven to solve them. And he gets caught up with the woman of a husband who had, of a, of a man who has seemingly died of suicide. And that woman is Song So Rae, played by Tang Wei, who's actually a Chinese actress. And that's part of the story here. She is learning Korean and that uh, occasionally inhibits how they communicate. Hei Jun is played by Park Hei Il. Decision to Leave follows their relationship as it spills out of this murder investigation and inevitably their paths continue to cross as time goes on. It is a very, the word that keeps being thrown out, I don't want to, I want to try to avoid using it, but I'm just going to say it because it is probably the most efficient way to describe it is Hitchcockian in that it follows this and it's noirish as well, a cop who's getting in out of his death with this mysterious woman who could or could not be dangerous because, of course, is this first man's death really a suicide or was she involved in some way? And as uh, Park Hale, or Park Hae Jun, excuse me, Hale is the actor, as Hart Hae Jun gets caught up in the case, he starts to build this relationship with the woman, which obviously is a little bit questionable to do as a cop investigating her husband's murder. And it's the story just takes some twists and turns that really kept me engaged, even as I was staying up super late <laughs> to fit in one final movie before we made this list. And when you couple that with Park Chan-wook's pretty masterful directorial hand, moving the camera in some really interesting ways, creating some beautifully, uh, beautifully weird compositions at times, and the absolutely beautiful score behind this movie. The music is fantastic. I I just I felt I knew that I had to include it on there, so it slotted in at my number ten. It clicked, kicked off Glass Onion at the very last minute. I will watch it eventually. I think. Have you seen any other Park Chan-wook films, Christian? I haven't. I really wanted to see The Handmaiden, but it, it's on the list. Yeah, I mean, same for me. I haven't seen The Handmaiden. I haven't seen Old Boy, which is his most famous movie. And he's got quite a few, long career, and so this is one of the funny, funnier parts about coming of movie-watching age at this particular time in my life, is I, a lot of times, run into very famous directors with their most recent movie, and then I work backwards from there. And that's definitely the case with the Decision to Leave. I can tell you, I will be watching more Park Chan-wook movies going forward. I would really strongly recommend you check this out. If folks want to watch it, it's actually available on a streaming service called Mubi, which is known for more art house fare, but... You get like a 90-day free trial. Yeah, right now, I think they normally do maybe a one-week or a one-month free trial. And right now, they're actually offering three months of their service for only a dollar. It's normally, oh. uh, I believe, 12 for a month. So if you wanted to check that out and maybe try the streaming service for yourself, you can go ahead and do that. But I would strongly recommend Decision to Leave, especially because it will probably get some attention from the Oscars. And now I'll pass it over to Christian for his number 10. So my number 10 is Violent Night. 
which is <laughs> which is the 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 Christmas action comedy film starring David Harbour as 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 a sad and cynical Santa who gets trapped in a house um, that is being robbed. He's he's kind of drunk, and then oh. there's he finds a walkie-talkie, and the little girl of that house has the other one of the walkie-talkies, and uh, um, she you know she believes she's talking to Santa, who her parents are you know, Santa isn't real, and then the uh, she is talking to Santa, and he starts to David Harbor his way through the robbers, and it was great. And it was a great time, and I had a fantastic time, and it paid so many homages to Home Alone. It was <laughs> unbelievable, and I, I I was sitting there thinking, man, this has this is like a great funny movie. I, I'm having a good time, and then it becomes like emotional because Santa finally meets the girl, and then I'm like, no, holding back tears. So, Violet Night, highly recommend. Still in theaters. Speaking of ill-advised things I did to see movies this year, in this situation, it's almost did the same movie. I, due to a quirk of the schedule, I ended up alone on Christmas night, and I arrived in LA to catch a flight the following morning. I was being picked up by an Uber at 7 a.m., and I got back to LA a little after 10. And I had to finish packing, and I had to sort of, you know, get sleep, and so I could wake up and catch my flight and not be exhausted. But I did seriously consider a 10.45 p.m. showing of Violent Nights, and I knew that I just had to be a little bit mature and not do that. <laughs> but I was this close, Christian. I was this close. You're a turd, baby. Let's go on to your number nine. Uh, I, I need to ask you one Violent Night question. Yes. What's, what's the best just action moment? If, it, if you can say it without spoiling. Uh, tease me and the listeners a little bit who still haven't seen it and need to watch a Christmas movie in January. This this robber is going upstairs to an attic where the little girl is, and the little girl finds bowling balls in the attic, so she starts to just like you know roll them down the stairs, and they keep hitting her. Um, and this thing that they teased earlier is that there is a nail coming out of one of the stairs. Oh no! And so robber's like fed up. She's like, you know, screw you, you little girl, and she starts running up again. The next bowling ball hits her, knocks her ankle, her head slams down, goes right through the nail. Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. Like Home Alone with a little John Wick twist. <laughs> All right. All right, my number nine is a movie that appeared on my top five of 2022 so far list earlier this year. We're going to hear from a few of those. But that movie is The Northman. Robert Eckers' Viking epic starring Alexander Skarsgård in a, I would say, a retelling of Hamlet, where Skarsgård, as a boy, his character's parents are killed. They're the, they're, her, rather, his father is killed and his mother is kidnapped. Um, they are the king and the queen of his particular Viking tribe. He escapes, vowing to one day grow up and re seek revenge on his uncle for the death of his father, as well as rescue his mother, who has been captured to become married to this uncle and start his new little kingdom. The Northman is definitely a movie that I wish got a little more positive attention throughout this year. Much was made of its box office failure. I think the studio came out to say that it was a success once it came onto VOD. Got a lot of rentals and a lot of people buying it once it was available to be bought. But it's just a movie that is, I think, just a fantastic period piece. And... Uh, 
has some incredible action sequences to boot, but it also boasts one of the best unsung performances of the year from Alexander Skarsgård as Amleth, this Viking warrior. And it's not the best in that he really searches his soul for the the the, the problem, the, the key to solve the problem of the human condition, or has these beautiful moments of speaking great dialogue. But no, it's because it's this crazy physical transformation where Amleth is he's, he's ripped, of course, because he's a Viking warrior, but he walks hunched over like a wolf, and he's growling and guttural, and he, as this Viking warrior, of course, is, is much more violent and honestly a little bit scary when compared to modern superheroes of the day. He is not afraid to kill, he's not afraid to get his hands bloody while he does it, and he is absolutely dedicated to his mission. And Anya Taylor-Joy enters later on as Olga, this beautiful witch that he meets and falls in love with and provides a counterweight to some of his more base tendencies, but just a fantastic lead performance that nobody has been talking about in terms of any acting attention. There, of course, have been a lot of great performances. Not everybody can get an Oscar or an Oscar nomination, but he's one who I wish had stayed a little bit more at the forefront. Aside from the fact that, again, beautifully shot movie, incredible costumes and production design to recreate this world, and that crazy final set piece with featuring the naked, violent Viking fight in a volcano. <laughs> Just an undeniable movie, absolutely will be one of, I can see this being one of my favorites of this year forever, and a movie that hopefully I'll get to rewatch soon. So that is The Northman. I, 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 I really enjoyed The Northman. I, it's a strong recommendation for me, especially the, the, the action scenes are just, Incredible, honestly, and they're and they're they're incredibly captivating. One of one of the better movie experiences for me for for this year. That is currently streaming on Prime Video for anybody who missed it and wants to catch up with it or would just wants to watch it again. Now it's time out, Christian, to you for your number nine. All right, my number nine is RRR, which you already mentioned, and I'm not gonna lie, I'm kind of surprised it didn't make your top ten. I, I'm like, this is everything Scott likes in a movie. <laughs> It is everything Scott likes in a movie. <laughs> Guys in a bromance, crazy action scenes, tigers, you know, just all the things I love. Oh, song and dance numbers. Song and dance numbers. <laughs> no, but it, it's written and directed by S.S. Rajamuli. Uh, it stars Ramarao Jr. as Beam, and it stars Ram Charan as Raju, who are two men who are in, independently have their own lives and let's let's just say agendas in pre-independent india with british colonialization so as it, it it's like a it's they meet each other and they start to develop just a, a friendship through the ages but they're also navigating their way through the difficulties of india at this time for its indian residents of the foot of oppression that's coming from everyone else of the um different just ties and allegiances that they can make full of incredible action sequences on, on, on <laughs> weird CGI that that's being used just concurrently with the humor of the action. It's pretty great. And the song and dance numbers, I mean, Natu Natu was wonderful and I'm glad it made like the shortlist at the Oscars for best song. Cause it's, it's, it, it's just, it's like one of those musical numbers where you actually remember what the song is. You care about it when it came on. Is that the at when they go to the British fancy party? Yes. And they start dancing. Yeah, just an absolutely incredible dance number just in the middle of this historical fiction action epic. <laughs> it's and, awesome. And and my only review for this movie, or like when I wrote a review for this movie, 
It said, this is what happens when a movie airs on the side of awesome. That You, you just see how it could have gone serious or epic, and Roger Mooley chose epic every time. As he should have. Because it totally have. works. There's a moment where they... Where Beam is staging a rescue attempt, and he rides in on a big box truck, and this box truck crashes through the gates somewhere, and then the person driving it turns it so that it drifts, and at that moment, Beam jumps out from under this curtain, and you see that it is not, in fact, a box truck, but rather cages of wild animals stacked up on the trailer bed for this truck and all hell breaks loose and i started cackling it just was one of the best things i'd seen in the movie maybe ever um yeah it's it's one of those where the only reason it's not higher up on my list is just because i i loved other movies more and definitely one that i'm very glad to have caught up with in my end of year catch up also gotta say it I maybe I'm holding this back just deeply psychologically because the main villain is named Scott, which is the funniest thing. Why is this Indian Telugu language film featuring a villain named Scott? I don't know, but Rajamuli chose that for his villain. Hey, your favorite colonizer. My favorite colonizer. The guy's named Scott. He's uh, the main villain, married to a woman played by Allison Duty, who most people will be like, where do I know her from? And then they'll realize that she was Elsa, who's the Nazi villain in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So, <laughs> She sucks. Yeah, she's she's evil. I, I Yeah, I cannot recommend this one more. It's on Netflix if you want to check it out. Unfortunately, filmed in the Telugu language on Netflix with the availability for an English language track or a Hindi language track. So... I know some people were disappointed about that, just the mix-up in what language the movie is actually in, but still worth seeing, even if you're watching a one of the dubbed versions. All right, and let's go on to your number nine. Moving on to my number eight, eight actually. Your number eight. Speaking of international movies that received their release on Netflix, my number eight is Athena, Romain Gavras' film about civil unrest in a Parisian neighborhood. Uh, it stars... Dali Ben Salah as Abdel. Uh, Alex, I gotta get these names right. Um, oh, the, bro- the younger brother. Where'd he go? Ah, there, there he is. Sami Slamane as Kareem and Wasini Mbarak as Mokhtar. Uh, three brothers who get caught in the middle of this conflict in Paris. Uh, a young boy has been killed allegedly by the police, and so the young people of this neighborhood decide to take justice into their own hands. They raid a police station, get equipment, and return to their neighborhood, which they have barricaded in an attempt to hold out until the officer who is alleged to have killed this boy is brought to justice, uh, very much frontier justice by these people and not by the court system. Uh, It follows these three brothers all on their different paths to their response to this tragedy. One of them is actually a soldier and a very respected soldier at that. He is brought in by the powers that be to try to quell the unrest. One of them is the leader of the the faction of young men who is trying to seek justice for this murdered young boy. And one of them is actually just a career criminal who is trying to get out while he still can and get on with what he has to get on with. Athena is probably one of the most electrifying and kinetic movie experiences I had of the year. The opening scene is... Mm, I don't even know how close it is to my best scene of the year, but it's an unbelievable one-take sequence that is actually one-take. There is not any hidden cuts where we see 
chaos break out at the police station after this brief speech from the uh, from one of the brothers. And the camera is pulling off things that I had no idea how they did it. And watching some of the behind the scenes is, is crazy. Um, but you think maybe that's it, just one ballsy sequence to kick off the movie. But no, there's one take sequences throughout as they capture all of this chaos unfolding as the police are able to break in to the neighborhood and then are forced back out as they consider should they turn someone should over they, to the people. Should, would they? Should they, would they? All of these heavy ideological questions and these crazy one-take sequences are filled throughout. There's a very shockingly low amount of editing for a movie with this much going on on screen. It also develops really this heartbreaking Shakespearean tragedy with the three brothers circling at the middle of it all and really moved me by the time the movie was over. I think it makes some choices near the ending that are actually missteps in, in what they choose to reveal about the situation. And But either way, it's still the movie that maybe the, maybe the excuse me, still the movie that the most surprised me this year, just in terms of what I was expecting going into it and how I felt coming out of it. So that is Athena, which is again available on Netflix. Have not seen it. Want to? We'll get to it. I don't think it'll get any American awards attention. I'm not sure if it'll get in for best international feature, but they're not. It's French, right? Yeah, it's not their submission. It wasn't a submission, so no, no attention from American awards ceremonies. But certainly hope it gets some love over in France. It, it is. It just blew me away, and I really, really, really recommend people go check it out. All right, I'm ready to fight. Number eight, I have Thor: Love and Thunder. Yep, shame on you, Christian. Just, I'm sorry that I like happiness and comedy movies right there were so many comedies you could have chosen christian i chose thor love and thunder so many hilarious movies this I year. i chose thor love and thunder cool you chose thor love and thunder because you love christian bale and you will overlook his many wrongs i did not choose amsterdam because amsterdam is a movie that does not work in almost <laughs> any conceivable form i still haven't seen that one unfortunately thor love and thunder works in every single way so written by Taika Waititi and Jennifer Kaelin Robinson, directed by Taika Waititi. So Thor is off with the Guardians and realizing that there is a massive hole in his heart. He has no purpose. And then he finds out that my father, Christian Bale, playing Gore the God Butcher, is butchering gods. And he decides to go off. And his purpose is now to stop this God Butcher. And along the way, he finds out that Natalie Portman's character is is Jane Foster is still alive and uh, um, she has now become the mighty Thor and now together with Valkyrie they perform escapades to stop Gore from reaching infinity and making a wish for all the gods to die I loved it man I think from the opening credit sequence which is so weird of just Gore losing his daughter and killing a god to the, the screaming goats, which I found annoying the first time, and then the second and third time I just thought were the best things in the world, to how it breaks form in the middle of the movie to become like a five-minute rom-com montage between, between Thor and Jane. I thought this was just one of the best times. I was sitting down there with my 3D glasses on thinking... You saw this in 3D? One of the three times was in 3D. I didn't even know that was an option, but okay. So, I... I loved it. I think the performance from Hemsworth was phenomenal. 
I think that the screenplay always just, just took turns. A screenplay probably shouldn't take. And yet it did so in service of comedy. And... <laughs> I think I, I, I actually I, can't tell if you're trying to like pull my leg because you're like I'm smiling not. your way through this, and that's not normally because a thing that you do. I, 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 I'm smiling my way through this because I know all of this is agonizing to you, and I, I just love how the Thor movies have gotten progressively better. Uh, as listeners, I don't know if listeners will remember this. I don't even know if I mentioned it. This is to me far and away the worst. Actually, I don't know if where this stands between this and the Dark World, but I would maybe say this is the worst Thor movie and one of my least favorite MCU movies out of all of them. Christian Bale is totally innocent. His performance in this movie is amazing. But <laughs> I was really let down by it. I'm glad that you like it, Christian. More uh, power to you. Good. Y'all, it's streaming on Disney+. Plus. Go see it. You've already seen it. You know you like it. Nobody liked this movie, Christian. Except you. So Except for the $760 that. million worldwide it raked in. I, I was part of that. I didn't like this movie. The money is not about liking. But speaking of movies that... People have not liked, and apparently you did not like. Should we get on to my number seven? <laughs> yeah, this is tough. Which is the inverse of Thor, in that it did not make any money at the box office, but that's not why movies are made. My number seven that, is... That, arguably, that's wrong. <laughs> arguably, that is why movies are made, unfortunately. We, we, if only we could have a beautiful society where art was made for art's sake, and we didn't have to worry about budgets and box office and all this shenanigans. But of course... My number seven movie is Babylon, Damien Chazelle's controversial-ish epic about Hollywood at the changing of the guard when silent films were moving out and talkies were moving in. So much has been made of this movie, and yet very few people have seen it. And I, it makes me so sad, because at times Chazelle almost lost me, and at times this was the best movie I had seen all year. And so in the midst of all of those... All of the pendulum swings that I endured with this movie, it landed at my number seven spot. Uh, Babylon follows three people in the early history of Hollywood, all of whom are fictional characters, but based on real people. Brad Pitt playing Jack Conrad, who's a movie star. Margot Robbie playing Nellie Leroy, who wants to be a movie star. And Diego Calva playing... Manuel, or Manny Torres, who is a young assistant who would like to break his way into Hollywood. is a pretty expensive supporting cast, but the other two major characters are uh, Giovanna Depo, who plays Sidney Palmer, a um, trumpet trumpet player who okay. moves from the He's band. He's 100% underused in this movie. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm still kind of a details Christian, but I agree. <laughs> and Lee Jun Lee, who plays Lady Feiju, who is a titles writer as well as an actress and a singer. And... Um, a, uh, a lesbian who is uh, trying to live her life without too much tablet attention. Babylon, following these people in their careers, rises and falls in Hollywood, is in some ways treading very familiar ground. Uh, very, very much Damien Chazelle's Bookie Nights or Damien Chazelle's riff on Singing in the Rain, sort of the evil twin to La La Land. Which was, what gave you the idea that Singing in the Rain was an influence on this movie? Uh, when they directly talk about it multiple times. <laughs> and intercut scenes of the movie with scenes from Singing in the Rain? <laughs> yeah. And the fact that it's, uh, there, are many, there are similar plot beats. Uh, covering an actor, somebody who wants to be an actor, and uh, so on. Okay. Babylon, to me... Let me finish my thoughts, Christian, here. Okay. So, Babylon, to me, it, it's... Again, some of the best scenes I've seen this year. The, the opening party is this sort of wild orgy, for lack of a better word. It's sinful. Uh, sure, Christian. And it is... 
it, the, the filmmaking here, certainly, some people who are annoyed at Chazelle's sort of wonderkin style of directing can dislike it. To me, the camera swooping in and out of his party, following the chaos as uh, Minnie and Nellie find each other, fall for each other, and Nellie sort of takes over as this wild, wild partier, which ultimately gets her cast in a Hollywood movie. Just an incredible opening scene to me. Then we get this amazing montage of them actually filming somewhere out here in Southern California before it was developed. Just a big patch of desert land. Really, really cool. Incredible scene of them shooting multiple movies on this back lot, leading to this great sequence where Manny has to run off and get a camera so that they can shoot this last shot of Brad Pitt's uh, character's, like his movie. They're trying to get it before they lose the sunlight. And... Just again, so many scenes that are just absolutely brilliant in this movie. Another one where they are trying to make uh, Nellie Leroy, Margot Robbie's character, trying to make her first talking picture. And the drama of trying to get <laughs> one shot to work because they don't know how to do it well yet gets you so tense. And a lot of much has been made and written about and spoken of about how Babylon takes some really big swings for the fences. And sometimes it misses, sometimes it hits a home run. And for me, the hits hit more than the swings and misses. Even that crazy ending that Chazelle really goes for, it <laughs> might not be the best guy for it, but it, as I thought about it more, I actually just ended up liking it. To me, Babylon is uh, wild and beautiful and sad and depressing and heartbreaking and gives me hope and makes me mourn. So had to include it on my top 10 list. Damien Chazelle has not made a bad movie yet. And once again, another score I want to shout out here, Justin Hurwitz's booming and driving percussion and Wonderful jazz heavy score. score. Unbelievable. Uh, if you want something good to go listen to while you're doing some work or something, give that a listen. You'll be tapping your foot all the way along. Anyway, Christian, you didn't like this movie. <laughs> okay, so as I've told you, I went to a Q&A where Damien was there, who was the kindest individual. He seemed just really shy when talking about the movie. He kept looking down, but was like speaking so openly and showed such a vast knowledge of cinematic history and afterwards kind of stayed and like met people and took pictures with them. He waved at me as I was waving at him. Um, and it just made me feel awful because I didn't like the movie. And I have, I like Damien Chazelle's movies. I love the fact that he's so young, which means that he still has like a booming career ahead of him. Hopefully. <laughs> After Babylon's failure at the box office, who knows? He'll know. He'll make another movie. It just maybe won't have the same budget. Absolutely. But I... I honest, the, the first hour I thought was disgusting. Like legitimately, there are disgusting things going on that yes, it, there are. that that felt gratuitous, more so than they actually I think introduced me to the world. Um, I think that the first hour was also not greatly edited, and I think that the sound was off at different places. And I love Brad Pitt throughout the movie. I don't know what character he was actually playing. He seemed to transition in and out of I'm Brad Pitt, the movie star, which I don't think was fully working. Now, again, um, it's weird. There are there are plot threads here, which I wish had gotten more time to do so. I absolutely agree with you that they... It's actually a mistake to introduce Sidney Palmer and Giovanna Depo's really good performance here and not give him enough screen time because his story is extremely interesting and, and reflecting like four on more scenes of him yeah reflecting on the people of color who helped build hollywood but got no credit for it is one of the strong points of babylon and it would have been actually a huge plus if he had focused more screen time on them but we are more invested in robbie's character pitt's character and of course diego calva 
he's I think is the star. Yeah, he's the star I of the love show. Him. Not not a white person, of course, a person of color here at the center. And it is good that of course that as part of this key trio, he probably his journey is maybe the most central. He gets maybe the most screen time. And so that complaint is a little bit addressed. But even so, um, Lady Feiju is also an extremely interesting character based on the actress Anna Mae Wong from real life. And it's kind of a shame that we had this opportunity to... Of course, maybe it's not Damien Chazelle's place to tell these stories, but I definitely wanted more from those particular characters and their plot threads because we get some really compelling moments with them. It's just that they're not necessarily developed as well as Brad Pitt's Jack Conrad is, who gets a lot more screen time. And it, it, it's weird also because very few characters in this movie have any nuance. And the movie doesn't have a ton of nuance, in my opinion. Margot Robbie is at 150% the entire movie. And yeah. when she's dis, like when she's sad or heartbroken, she's like heartbroken at 150. Yeah. She's like throwing up. She's I, I don't actually see any struggle inside of her. Now, again, I did see this with Diego Calva, who I think is a star. I can't wait to see another movie. And thankfully, with the... Um, with the traction and, and attention he's been getting from this movie he'll get to star in more things in in the u.s though honestly like also let's just look out for his mexican work but and and, and the ending which i didn't hate I, I think it just cemented what i don't think is working about this movie is that uh i think you can let me know that this is an homage to singing in the rain without showing the movie singing in the rain and intercutting scenes of this movie with it and I think you can tell me that cinema is important without the very last section of this movie, which I honestly like didn't hate. I, I, I think it was kind of funny. It, it, it's just like a, yeah, I can, I, I, I can, I can, I could clearly tell the direction, the tragedy that would befall every single character. Absolutely. It's, it's, there's nothing surprising, <laughs> I would say. Um, I wish that we could spend more time on Babylon because we devoted a whole episode of the show to it. Um, I will say it's definitely one of the most fascinating movies of the year in That's terms true. of the reactions that it's getting. So check it out for yourself. It, the opening section is not necessarily for the faint of heart. There are also there's a sequence involving Tobey Maguire later on in the movie that is even less so for the faint of heart. But I like that one more. Yeah, <laughs> definitely a movie worth checking out. Be be mindful. Maybe don't bring any young children or easily frightened old people to it. But check out Babylon. It's still in theaters and. Uh, to me, Damien Chazelle has uh, always remained on my top ten list of the year. Christian, your number seven actually appears elsewhere on my list, so we're going to pass over it and go to your number six. So my number six is Cha Cha Real Smooth, written and directed by Cooper Rife. I almost swapped this in for my top to be my top five somewhere, but I kept it here. I think it needs a couple more rewatches. Um, Cooper Rife, again, someone who I have met, took a picture with him. He's a lovely individual. Um, Likes to, I, I, he created a production company, I think, called Small Ideas, because everything that he writes is very self-contained. It's no one trying to save the world. It, it's no, like, grand catastrophe. They're not genre movies. They're small, intimate family dramas. And this is him as a man who just graduated college, who after graduating college doesn't know what to do, which I think is so much more relatable than what we get from a crap ton of different movies. And as he goes on to become a party starter at, at bar and bat mitzvah parties, even though he himself is not Jewish, and as he develops a relationship with Domino, one of the mothers there, who is played by Dakota Johnson, and honestly, I think of a, a, a fantastic Dakota Johnson performance that I, I, I just loved watching. And also, as we 
as we meet Lola, who is Domino's daughter, and how how easy it was for for um, Andrew, which is Cooper Rafe's character, to develop this relationship with Lola, played by Vanessa Burkhart. I, I found myself just moved and, and wanting this character to succeed in life and wanting this character to to figure stuff out. And I realized it was because I want that thing for myself. And so many people whom I have met who love Cooper Rife have said I realize have said I realized that when I'm rooting for him, it's because he in this movie is rooting for me. And so I love him. He has a movie coming out called The Trashers soon. Hopefully this year, but we don't know, and it'll star David Harbour, and it'll probably be another small movie. I can't, I can't wait to see what it is that he does next, and I think that maybe eventually he'll make a big-scale movie, and I think he'll crush it, and maybe that's when he'll finally get the awards recognition, because he's recognized as one of the major voices. He's only 26, I think, um, of, of the you know 20s range. I, I, can't, I can't wait. I can't wait, really. There are some directors who are in our age range now, the, the 25, 26, 27 folks, the, the young people who are getting opportunities, Cooper Rife being one of those. And it's exciting to see our mm-hmm. generation starting to tell their stories. Uh, Cha-Cha Real Smooth is not a movie that worked for me nearly as well as it did for most people, it seems. I unfortunately never really bought into the Dakota Johnson performance or the Cooper Rife performance <laughs> and their chemistry. But there's there's a lot to like about Cha Cha Real Smooth, and especially um, Christian, as you described, kind of one of those movies where it just connected with you in a really unique and special way. Um, I, I think this is the kind of movie where that can happen. Uh, it's that kind of coming of age story where sometimes what happens in a coming of age movie just connects with you better than it does someone else, and that means it's going to be special to you forever. And so I would definitely recommend people, especially younger folks, maybe in college or just out of it. Uh, would check this one out on Apple TV+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Cooper Rife's first movie, in college. Cooper Rife's second movie, recently out of college. Cooper Rife's third movie, Fire from a Job? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what The Trashers is about. It's about a hockey team, I think. Oh, that, that sounds delightful. I can't wait. My number six movie is The Banshees of Inishirin, a movie that you mentioned previously in your 11 through 20, Christian. Mm-hmm. Written and directed by Martin McDonough, starring Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Yes, I'm, as, I'm glad we get to actually talk about this one. Yes, as as two friends who have a falling out when the older of the friends tells the younger he simply does not want to be friends anymore. And the younger, uh, played by Colin Farrell, has to deal with the consequences of that. Uh, for a while, Banshees was the funniest movie of the year for me, and I actually caught up with quite a few movies that just made me laugh uh, laugh out loud and have a good time. So I don't know if it still holds that title, but Banshees does have the distinction of being a movie that made me laugh out loud, but also almost make me cry. Uh, it's a uh, a movie that really got me back in favor with Martin McDonough. I, I was really torn on the three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Not a movie that really worked for me, where obviously it got a lot of Oscars attention and a lot of others loved it. But this one, to me, I totally understand the praise for. The the dissolution of this friendship makes you so sad when you re- when you learn the reasons for why it's happening. But I think McDonough also does a good job of giving us enough to work with for both characters and understand where they're coming from. There's a competing philosophies at the center of this movie. Padraig, the younger man, wants to live a good life and be happy and be meaningful to the people that he knows and that he loves. And Colm is really struggling with, what do I leave behind if I'm just a, a, you know, a lonely older man living on this island off the coast of Ireland? And he dives deep into his songwriting because he, he plays the fiddle and he writes music. And 
it's set against the backdrop of the Irish Civil War as well. And I think there's some context that I don't fully understand there too, but that can even deepen the experience if you're willing to go search it out. Uh, we also have Barry Keoghan. I, I never know how to pronounce his last name. Keoghan, I think. Keoghan, Keegan, Keegan. I've heard a lot of different pronunciations, but Barry Keoghan playing sort of the, the village idiot, <laughs> I guess you could call him, uh, goofy as ever, and Carrie Condon playing the sister to Patrick's character in probably the runaway you know, surprise best performance of the movie. Uh, she is uh, the bookish, quiet sister who can get quite defensive and uh, and loving when she needs to be, and she is incredible. Uh, there's a scene with her and Barry Keown that's been making the rounds on social media where Keown uh, confesses his love for her and she has to let him down easy, but just a very funny, very moving, amazing movie uh, to me, and great donkey as well, Jenny the donkey. Fantastic donkey <laughs> performance. So this this is very much a like bromance heavy year and we'll get to that later on in the list also um uh, even 13 lives honestly is a bromance there are a lot of like men loving men kind of movies here 2022 was for the boys i guess <laughs> as the rest of cinema history is <laughs> so i i enjoyed this movie i i it made me think a lot about mortality it made me think about legacy and what are the extents to which honestly babylon did this as well what are the extents to which you leave legacy behind and and what pains should you actually take and does it matter and i didn't come to any conclusions and i don't think the movie pushes me toward any of them just poses that giant question um if there's anything holding me back for the movie is that because I didn't make up my mind and the movie didn't make up its mind I don't know how to feel it's a wonderful movie it's a fantastic movie it's gotten a ton of attention which is wonderful and and Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson and Carrie Condon and Barry Keown are phenomenal in this movie I look forward to seeing Martin Mc... honestly I would love to see a Martin McDonough play yeah he's notably maybe he came up as a playwright and has continued to write plays well into his career and it'd be Interesting to see some of his work on stage, because you could see how this would work as a play if they refashioned some of it. But Banshees is streaming on HBO Max now. If you want to catch up with that, it will definitely be receiving some attention at award ceremonies later this year. So if you want to be in the know, check it out. Um, should we take a break? Because it's 8.42. Yeah. And we're so, not going to get through five. Yeah. So Christian, I don't know if you put down a sound effect or something like that, but we have a first here for the Cinema Drip podcast in that we actually took a break. We're here at part two to finish our top 20, technically, top 10 movies of 2022. How was the, the rest of your day? It's 5.30 now, <laughs> our time. I had, well, when we finished, I went to the gym and then I had coffee with someone and then I had back-to-back -back meetings while also putting out fires at my other job. And then I went on a run, and now I'm severely dehydrated and in need of nutrition. Well, please drink some water, and if you need nutrition, I guess, get some food, too. That would make for interesting podcasting, but I'm here for you. <laughs> oh, me, like, passing out? If you pass out, it'd be great, because that means I get to talk about your top five movies, of which I haven't seen one, and I disliked another. So I can just really go to town there. So feel free to pass out if you want. <laughs> I'll finish my list, and we'll finish yours if we have to. Sure, sure, sure. But, Christian, let's get back into it, because it's time to talk about your number five movie of the year. My number five movie of the year 
is The Fablemans, which is directed by Steven Spielberg, written co-written by him and Tony Kushner, who have worked previously on uh, West Side Story, Munich, and uh, Lincoln. Now, it tells the story of a young Sammy Fableman, played by Gabriel LaBelle, and it, it's a coming-of-age story of how he was first introduced to movies, and then the tumultuous-ish relationship his parents had with each other, him being forced to move from place to place to place, and how movies were the way that he found he could cope with all of it. It is an obvious stand-in for Spielberg, and the kid apparently kind of looks like him, and you know he's going to all the states that Spielberg grew up going to, and the parents are based on Spielberg's parents. Sure, it's an autobiography to, uh, of sorts, but it it feels slightly different. It, it's much more so. It, it's one of the more potent, the power of movies, movies that there are, because it's not. I think looking for cheap thrills of like man isn't cinema awesome no like the whole movie is about how cinema is awesome and terrifying at the same time yes. <laughs> and like this is my number 11 so just barely off my top 10 list but i think a lot of people are missing something in the fablemans because yes there is much is made about the magic of movies and all that and we see the ways that spielberg using sammy fableman as his stand-in developed his filmmaking prowess and his love of the movies but we also see spielberg cons- consistently throughout the movie either criticize like indulging in self-critique where he is questioning his own instincts as a filmmaker over his own humanity or he's learning dark family secrets through the home movies that he captures or he's manipulating people knowingly with the movies that he makes which is the one thing he's been criticized through throughout his whole career for his emotional manipulation he has he's movies so are, good at that. yes he's beautiful and beautifully talented at emotional manipulation but if you're not if you don't go for that you're gonna hate steven spielberg so i i love that instead of making this sort of autobiography that so many directors have made in recent years we got a number of them just this year alone and yet spielberg's take on it is so different from what we've already gotten when he could have made it super schmaltzy and you know manipulative as he's known for it's also, I loved Sammy Fableman. I think Gabriel LaBelle gave one of the best performances of this year. And how he's really innocent, you know, he's very childish looking. He's, he's very, you, you, you can tell he, he's, he's playing just like the naive card so, so hard in this. But also, it's like the skill that he develops with movie doesn't it isn't that of a savant. It's that of a terrified individual who doesn't know any other way to deal with what he's experiencing. It's I mean it, it it's it's a lovely 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 movie and it's not um, there's like no barrier to entry. You don't need to love movies to love this one. It, it it's I I highly encourage people to check it out. I think it's on PVOD right now. It was not successful at the box office, but it's it's wonderful. It really is. Yeah, it's a tr- sort of tragic irony that Spielberg is considered one of the people who really made blockbusters a thing. Jaws is widely considered one of the first true blockbuster movies for a summer, as we know now. And now his most recent movies have been really struggling at the box office as he's 
he took a chance on a big movie, of course, with a remake of West Side Story, and that did very poorly at the box office. And now his more personal look at his own family, The Fablemans, once again did very poorly. And that's, of course, not the that's that's not why he makes movies. It's not why most artists are making movies. I'm sure some of them want to get rich, but <laughs> for he's, Spielberg, he's, he's plenty rich right now. Yeah, he's probably fine. So it is interesting to think about that. But yeah, just a, a really beautifully done. Turning inward, I would say. Turning inward via movie. What did you make of the Michelle Williams performance? Because I know for a lot of people, it's one of the performances of the year. A lot of people are saying she's going to get an Oscar nomination, maybe even win. And I'm curious what you thought. I, I think it was very potent. I mean, I, I, I liked that, that she, she she's like a, a force of nature in, in how wild she is. And in that sense, like it... It really makes the movie from, you know, Sammy's perspective because he looks at his his parents as polar opposites. So if you look at it from his eyes, which you know we have frequent close-ups of Sammy's eyes, it's like a his mom as this angelic being, and his dad as this stoic and grounded individual. So I, I think her performance made sense to me. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I wanted to, I had to leave it off my top ten is honestly because I was a, I just wasn't fully bought in on her performance, which is maybe the biggest hot take I have for a movie this year outside liking Don't Worry Darling. But I don't know, there was something a little bit too much about it for me. Because she's supposed to be based off a real person, and everybody else is playing very normal, normal-ish, naturalistic, whatever you want to say, kind of types of performances. So I'd be curious to give it another watch and see how it sits with me now that I know what to expect. And of course, part of it is that he, in casting his parents, wanted to really capture his father, who was very straightforward, scientific kind of person, not very artistic himself, certainly creative, but just not in an artistic way. And his mother, very differently, was very musically talented, uh, had, you know, very, would probably describe herself as creative in that way. Changes very, emotionally on the drop of a dime. Yeah, very emotional. His father's very even-keeled. And you see the ways that sometimes they complement each other, and sometimes, of course, that causes conflict and leads to their ultimate divorce. And so I'd be curious to watch it again, knowing what I know about the Williams performance. There are times when, of course... I mean, she's Michelle Williams. She's a fantastic actress, pretty much no matter what. And so there are times when she totally sells in a moment and makes it work beautifully. But there were times where she... The performance just didn't work for me, so... I'd be curious to watch it again. All right. Let's let's move on to your number five. Moving on to my number five, another holdover from my uh, list from earlier this year, top five so far, it's The Batman. Uh, Matt Reeves' take on the character with Robert Pattinson taking over the cape and the cowl from Ben Affleck. You know, of course, uh, if you heard our episode on it earlier this year or heard me talk about it briefly on our Drippies Awards earlier, uh, this, uh, I guess last month, you know that I was a huge fan of this one. I love Batman on screen. I have a good time with most Batman movies. And so to have one as good as this definitely made me very happy. I um, feel like I don't need to add too much here, but it's yet another excellent Colin Farrell performance, of course. <laughs> a lot of love to his movies here in this top 20 list. He His performance as the Penguin was very key just in showing off his range this year. Because we had him in dramatic roles. We had him in... Uh, comedic roles we had him in dramedy-esque roles but he really had a chance to do a lot this year and his performance as the penguin was one that um obviously you know it's not one that's going to get awards attention like say the banshees of anishirin but 
Thought he was great in that. This is a great cast. Beautifully, beautiful looking movie, especially in a time where a lot of blockbusters or at least all of a lot of other superhero projects just don't look as good and they tend to sacrifice the look and the feel of the movie for four quadrant appeal. I was really, really excited by the way that this looked. So big fan of that one still, and it remained on my top ten list at the end of the year. I think the movie is fine. I like it. Your loss? Could have done with like an forty minutes plus. I, I saw it, I mean, I probably talked about this when our we did our top five of the year episode, but I saw it a second time in theaters, and some of my complaints about watching it again just didn't matter when I went from watching it at 11 p.m. on Thursday night to watching it at like four o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, so <laughs> definitely a movie, maybe don't watch it too late at night unless you're a huge diehard Batman fan, but I think it moves pretty well given its length. All right. Moving on, Christian, to your number... Four. Which is also your number four. Which is also my number four. Folks, probably could have seen this one coming given how the month of December went on this podcast, given how the month of November went on this podcast, but no one's surprised, Christian. Tell the people what it is. It's Avatar The Way of Water, written by James Cameron, Rick Jaffa, and Amanda Silver, directed by James Cameron himself. And Big Jim, baby. He's back. Continues on the adventures in Pandora. Okay, I, I, I have to admit something. I okay. saw this movie for the first time in 2D. was not great. And plot-wise, the movie is, is like very obvious. And then I rewatched it in 3D. And basically all complete are done. And it's, it's that thing where... What, it's, it's my favorite tweet to quote about this movie. Sometimes you just got lost watching a giant Pandora fish go across the screen. And it's... What I realize now is that the like even what I disliked about the script, I came to appreciate it because it was all in service of building this franchise or, or like building this world, which I can't wait to see more of. If... if the point of some of these things is for you to be interested in whatever else could be existing, then this did that beautifully. Like, where, you know, where are the um, volcano Navi? Oh, they're coming. I know they are, they are. (laughs) I'm so excited for them. Or, or like, where are the, I don't know, what are the tribes in, like, The Last Airbender? Uh, Well, they're, with that, uh, I guess... The mountain Navi. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, would the Omatokaya be, like, would they be Earth? Because... I thought they were, like, their fishing village. Well, no, that's that's the Matkaina. That's the new tribe from this one. What was uh, the Matkaina are the forest people, aren't they? <laughs> Indeed, they are. They're the forest people, yeah. I'm I'm sure we'll get some underground Navi. We'll maybe get you know we'll get some fire Navi for sure. Who knows? The the, the, the options are limitless. Maybe there's some like creepy like psychic Navi. Like they only exist as in their spirit forms. Who knows? The, mm-hmm. the possibilities are endless. It would be hilarious if there were like urban Navi. <laughs> It's like they're all dressed like hipsters from 2009. 100%. Infinity Yeah. <laughs> they're wearing the 3D glasses from the movie with the lenses punched out. Or oh, my gosh. With like the one blue, one red. Yeah, exactly. There we go. All right. <laughs> Look, I mean, the, the world of Pandora, it was such a delight to be back in it. Obviously, we both had this at our number four. Again, another movie I had the chance to see in theaters twice. First time with my wife, second time with my family back in Ohio when I was visiting them for the holidays. And just 
completely and utterly blown away by the the visuals here. James Cameron has created an extraordinary world purely for the purpose of being explored on film. And it's going to be franchised. There was a video game for the first movie. There's going to be a video game kind of elsewhere in the world coming out in 2023. There's other merchandise, of course. It can be crass and callous. There's capitalism at play here. They're making money. But at the same time, I think Cameron really believes in the story he's telling and the world that he created. And there are very few people who are doing it like he is. And the fact that he is now back and will get to make a few more of these movies, hopefully, It's already made $1.4 billion. It's unbelievable. It, people it's... doubted. <laughs> they really doubted. And yet... One more weekend and it'll be the highest grossing movie of 2022. And Top Gun Maverick was in theaters literally all summer. Like it for five in, months? It came out in May, right? Or whatever it was. And people could still see it in like September, I think. Yeah, they even put it back in theaters in December. Just like a one more, come check it out again before Avatar dominates the box office. And now they've almost been overtaken. Uh, aside from the... It's like, yeah. Yeah. Aside it's, from the business side of things, I know that we both agree that the, the writing of this movie isn't exactly its biggest strength. But I will say that I think the characters are sketched out Artfully enough that despite the fact that there are, there are, it feels like there are scenes missing at times where we're all of a sudden learning about the tool con and nobody told us about it and <laughs> Loak just knows what this person, this creature is. I thought it was a Talcoon. Tool con. It's tool con? Yeah. With the, those are the whales, right? Yes. Oh, wait, what's the one that we like? Pyacon. Pyacon. Pyacon's yeah. great. Pyacon's like... He's the loner. <laughs> is, is he like the best animal in a movie this year? Um, well, oh, Jenny the Jenny, donkey from Jenny, Jenny's the up She's there. up there. Uh, the dog from Prey. I was a big fan of the dog from Prey. I don't know if you got around to that fine. one. Yeah. But again, these moments and these characters are sketched out artfully enough that I, I find myself genuinely moved. And there are people who might listen to this and think that I am an absolute 14-year-old boy. And it's partially because I saw the original Avatar when I was a 14-year-old boy. But there's enough here that it just, it, it moves me. And when there are people lamenting a character who has lost their life near the end of the movie, I can't hold it back, man. Tears. Tears in the Regal Hudson cinema. So, the visuals are astounding. The story works enough for me. The kids are amazing in this movie. <laughs> the kids, the, all of the young actors are so talented. And, and especially bringing the performances young through actor? the motion capture. <laughs> one 70-year-old actor playing a teenager. Who's great. Who is great. Truly. And I will say, some of, again, some of the most exciting action sequences of the whole year were found in Avatar The Way of Water. Just a reminder that James Cameron has not lost a step as a director. Even when his world is digital and his actors are buried in motion capture suits. Just a, an incredible accomplishment. One for which I understand most of the criticisms against it and wouldn't fault someone for disliking this movie, but totally worked for me. And I Already can't wait for Avatar 3 in, uh, what, wait, wait, two years? Yeah, two yeah. more years. We're waiting, but we'll, we'll, we'll be all right. We'll Anything else you wanted to add about Way of Water, Christian? It's still in theaters. It's still in theaters. Go, go check it, it out if you haven't seen it. Or maybe go check it out in 2D. Get, get that 3D or 4D. Get one of those chairs that, like, shakes around. Maybe one that spits water on you. I don't know. Is that what Regal does? Well, there, there's what, 40X? Is that what Regal has? I don't know, man. All right. Moving on to my number three movie of the year. That's right. We're in the top three movies now, Christian. The time is running out here for our lists. 
I can't wait to see what you've got to share, even though I can technically look at your list anytime I want. I'm just vamping for the listeners. Go on, Christian. Tell us your number three. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. So, Dean Fleischer Camp, Jenny Slate, and Nick Palais wrote it, directed by Dean Fleischer Camp, based on the series of YouTube shorts that came out apparently in the 2010s. Which you did not see before seeing this movie. I it just not. blows my mind. <laughs> It blows your mind that I liked this movie without having seen those shorts. No, not well. Partially that you loved it this much, and I can't, obviously can't complain. It was on my eleven through twenty list. I think it was a it's a great movie, but those shorts were so ubiquitous. Like I, it's just funny to me that you missed out. There were three of them, and you hadn't seen a single one, and yet you still loved this movie so much. It's just funny to me that that that's how it worked out. Because I think for me, and and I went to see it with Maddie. It was just fun to, to realize, oh my gosh, there's a Marcel the Shell movie? We have to go see that because we remembered the shorts so fondly. And to know that you had no connection and still went out to see this and, and fell for it as hard as you did, it's just so heartwarming. It, I mean, it's a heartwarming movie. It's a heartwarming movie that it's like deals with the family unit and is like deals with the art versus artist and the subject and the painter and it like for some reason deals with broken connections and how to be connected in a time where you know we were leaving aspects of COVID but still within the grasp of it it was both timely and yet also heartwarming and every single performance here gave you life and brought a smile to your face It, it, it it's a movie that makes you happy it's a movie that is beautifully done and it's a movie that makes you think you know there are good things in the world and there are things that hurt but through those hurting things there can still be good i i think too something that they do really well is the this movie is written in a way so that it can be understood by kids and adults alike mm -hmm. and so many movies i think you know the appeal primarily to kids and maybe they'll throw in some jokes for the grown-ups or it's movies that kids may not understand it but they manage to fit some of these themes in in a way that I, I really do think that maybe not the youngest of kids, but kids who were growing up, preteens, they would understand what Marcel is going through. And they would be able to relate to the fears that he's experiencing about not really wanting to put himself out there and go out in the world and find his family. But even though he knows the reward could be amazing. And that's something that you and I can relate to as 20-somethings. And I'm sure that people can relate to when they're in their 30s and 40s and further on down the road. That universality is challenging to do, especially when you're making a movie about a stop-motion conch shell with shoes on. <laughs> yeah, they pulled it off so beautifully here. There's also like a Cheeto. But then there's like a Cheeto that's animated, right? Oh, there there is one joke here for adults that the kids won't understand. <laughs> I'm forgetting it. Hardy hairs? <laughs> I'm forgetting the specific moment where that comes up, but I do remember what you mean. Uh, fantastic. So Marcel, the show with shoes on, I think it's on HBO Max, or at least at once at one point. Um, so. Not according to Just Watch, I don't think, and Letterboxd, but maybe it's out of date. Who knows? I don't know. You it's know, on VOD, folks. I have it on. You you bought it for me for Christmas. It was your Christmas present this year. It's a wonderful Christmas present. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's move on to your number three. My number three is Tar. Written and directed by Todd Field and starring Kate Blanchett as the um, <laughs> magnificent and possibly evil maestro at the center of this art world, or classical music rather, class world of classical music drama. 
you had not seen Tar, it does follow Blanchett as Lydia Tar, this famous composer, conductor, who is preparing to conduct what is the basically the one of the culminating moments of her career. She's been working through the works of Gustav Mahler and accomplishing this final symphony will kind of bring some, I guess, completion to her this part of her career. It's going to be a big moment for her. She's recently published a uh, book as well, so she's on the media tour for that. And while she is getting ready for this big concert coming up, she starts receiving some contact from a former student of hers and eventually gets caught up in some allegations made against her by this former protege. It is a challenging and a complex movie in many respects, but I think one that has continued to fascinate me since I saw it a few months ago. And I'm very glad to have caught it near the end of its theatrical run because... Number one, it is a, it's a beautiful-looking movie uh, for a, a movie that is set in the world of classical music and isn't particularly flashy with its camera. It's just very artfully constructed. Every shot, to me, works very well, even though it's not very ostentatious. And when you have this titanic performance at the center of it with Blanchett as Tar, it is hard to look away. Uh, but Field also throws in some... You, you could call it supernatural even, like throws in some flourishes as her mental state starts to slowly unravel from the stress of everything going on around her. She also has an, an assistant who is trying to move up and she has to decide whether she's going to let her. She has a wife and a child that she's trying to manage relationships with. And uh, there are, of course, more people swirling in and out of her life who... Tar is trying to maintain these relationships with or take advantage of them because that is what she has historically done in her career and she's essentially starting to experience her comeuppance. Uh, it's just a movie that I, I'd like to say more on, but I know you have some thoughts on too, Christian, so I want to pause to let you let you share, but gotta say, also maybe the funniest ending to any movie of this year. <laughs> that totally took me by surprise. Those are my initial thoughts on Tar, Christian. I, I know perhaps it did not work as well for you. So, I want to know what you think. For a movie where you see so many characters talking about the importance and how much music moves them, frighteningly little score is used. And I did not actually think most of them were talented. Because I was never shown that. I was never actually shown how much the, their profession came into their lives. Um, who? Well, what do you mean? They're all talking. Like every time Lydia Targets interviewed, every time that she is talking with like the new girl that she likes, when she's speaking with the other members of the choir in Germany or like that is it Berlin that they're at? Yeah, she's leading the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. They, they, they talk so much about music, the effect that music has, how much music has moved them, what music can do, and yet I never hear any of it. I never hear any music. And I kind of hated that because it, 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 it was so talky about how talented she is. I wanted to see her, you know, come... Not, I wanted to, to, to see... What, what's She's a composer, right? She's a... What, what's, composer conductor. She's what, a composer conductor. Yeah, I wanted to see her conduct that. more. Um, I, I, I think it's, a, I, I think it's for the most part, decently well crafted. I did think that Kate Blanchett was kind of mechanical. 
and a little I, I didn't really believe in it I feel like she went too far in, in how much it is and I'm not gonna lie I, the the ending to me was funny and then I'm thinking about it I'm like this feels a little racist the the with without spoiling it I will say we see that there's a group of people all of whom are dressed in a specific way all of whom are from a specific race and it's kind of meant to like provoke humor but we're like laughing at how much Lydia Tarr has fallen and we're supposed to assume that conducting for this group of people is her having fallen and it, I, I, I just had too many issues with too many parts of the movie to connect with it so yeah let's work backwards I think specifically regarding the ending I took it to mean it's not the people she's conducting for it's the context and the, and the medium that she's conducting for I don't want to spoil it in case, obviously I want people to go see this and, and check it out for themselves, make their own evaluation. I didn't take it to mean that, oh no, now she has, she's uh, somewhere in Southeast Asia. So, oh, oh no, she has to conduct for this group of, um, you know, Chinese young people or, or Thai young people. It doesn't specify where she is, I don't think. I don't, that's not what I took it to mean. I took it to mean that, oh, this type of music that she's now conducting, how she's fallen from Mahler for the Berlin Philharmonic to what she's conducting now. Um, moving on to the performance, I, I think her being mechanical is a little bit part of it because this is a person who has become incredibly powerful, who took what, what gifts they did have and, you know, leveraged it where they could. And I think too, what's interesting about Lydia Tarr is that she is a white woman, yes, but also a lesbian. So there is some understanding, uh, there's some more intriguing power dynamics than a lot of these stories tend to take where it's it, you know it's a straight white man who rises and falls or is the villain in, in these kinds of scenarios and there's some layers provided because of her status as a woman and as a member of the lgbt community that i think you know she had to leverage this power but she is still just as toxic as any any other person who has this kind of power over people and chooses to abuse it can be and I think the mechanical nature of the performance, at times, it's, it's there so you can see how little the people in her life mean to her. The only thing that matters to Lydia Tarr is Lydia Tarr. And the only thing that matters is her legacy, her achievements, her accolades. And she, of course, receives her just rewards. And Blanchett also gets a chance to flex a little bit during the fall, I would say, but... If we had seen a whole movie of that, it would have been very familiar and very boring. And getting as much of her in her kind of power mode I, as we I, did I before she falls apart, so much more interesting. I didn't see any part of Kate Blanchett that I haven't seen before. I mean, Christian, how many Kate Blanchett movies have you seen? Like, Several, at least 15. Uh, fair, okay, fair. I, but even so, it's like, just because an actor is doing something no, but that's, that's thematically related to what she's that, done before. Okay, sure, but maybe it doesn't need to be thematically related to what it's done before. It's just not believable to me. I don't understand what's it's over. It's overly this. dramatic without it seeming like that's the point. It felt like I'm seeing an actor here trying to act like they're important instead of someone naturally taking on the air of being important. To me, the whole performance is effortless. And so I, I mean, obviously there's a lot of effort behind what she did. She had to learn, refresh her musical abilities to play the piano and to conduct, but it, it felt like I could see the effort. Right into that. I feel like I could see every single muscle being strained. <laughs> 
Too bad for you, I suppose. I, I really think, especially the, the opening scene of this movie, she's sitting down with a real-life New Yorker reporter named Adam Gopnik and is doing this sort of talk back uh, with an audience about some of her work. And it, I think it's part of why so many people thought Lydia Tarr was a real person and this was a biopic, even though obviously it's not. And she settles in so naturally to this this talk that she's giving to and what really acts as that. She settles in so naturally. She's staring at him with this like mischievous smile on her face and like only speaks in these round syllables with a very specific Christian, cadence like, throughout all that she's that's doing. How, that's how these upper crust like art world people are like if she was super laid back and casual no for the kids that conductor, would have been doctor no other person around her was speaking in that manner well, we get a very small segment of this world and which is why the world was not believable to me this doesn't make any sense to me christian but i understand if you weren't uh, weren't a big fan of the movie here um i will say when she speaks to her student i really like that that's a great scene when she speaks to the um BIPOC pansexual pan Yeah, there one of the much discussed scenes in the movie is when she does a she does a guest lecture at the Juilliard School in New York, and so she's teaching a class of you know people who are studying to be composers and conductors, and she gets into it with this one student who says he doesn't like Bach, and says he doesn't like Bach partially because he is a a person of color who is not he's not straight and he wants to be rejecting the work of straight, great straight white men who have been celebrated in these kinds of circles, of course, for all of time. And so there is a little bit of back and forth where I think the scene is written in such a way that you feel a little bit for what Tar is saying, but also feel for this young person who is trying to advocate for their opinions and being belittled for it. And the whole scene actually unfolds in a single take. And it, it, again, just brilliant acting all around from everybody involved in the scene, even the people who are kind of sitting in the background. Um, Again, I think the movie is filled with scenes like that. I mean, we haven't even touched on... Um, we should we should move on from We that. should move on. There's so much more that we could get into with Tar. There's there's more people who get involved in her life. I want to say Nina Haas, who plays her wife Sharon. A very, very good performance from her as well, even with not as much screen time or dialogue as Tar. Someone I would love to see get some more attention from these awards bodies as we get into this season. That's Tar, though. Not streaming anywhere right now. I'm sure it's on VOD. Really would encourage you to check it out. Uh, now, Christian, we'll move on to your number two. Uh, Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. It was written by Alejandro Gonzalez Sr. Ritu and Nicholas Giacomboni. Directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Sr. Ritu. It is his first movie since The Revenant. Uh, and uh, his first comedy since Birdman. It is a Mexican film that stars a man who is a Mexican documentarian who um, emigrated at a young age and is torn between the life that he made for himself despite having a Mexican wife and having Mexican children but bringing them up in the Los Angeles area and now having to go back to Mexico to do some interviews because he's going to be receiving a prestigious award and, and kind of like dealing with this torn identity. It is magical realism to like its fullest extent it is like two hours and 40 something minutes exceedingly long and yet what i recognized about this movie is that i couldn't pinpoint on what the most important scene was because every scene was just so incredibly memorable there's a scene where he's like talking to her non-cortez in <laughs> just like <laughs> 
outside he just starts talking with him there's indeed there is there there's there's this random scene where um every time his daughter claps the music in a nightclub changes there's a scene where he's being interviewed at a mexican talk show and (laughs) he like can't speak and the entire audience is like responding as one there's this scene where every so often the um uh, the the Mexican army from the Mexican American War comes and just like moves stuff around. And a very vivid recreation of a, a battle uh, from that war, I think. It, I I found it to be so poignant in how it was dealing with split identities. It's like belonging to one place, growing up in another. It, it, I found it to be an amazing immigrant story. And um, it stars Daniel Jimenez Cacho as, as just the... Well, he, it, it's been based on Inuritu's life, sure. He stars as Silverio, who's a documentarian. He is so good in this movie in terms of dealing with the surrealism of, of all the things going on, I was able to see um, Inuritu at a Q&A, and he was talking about how he didn't necessarily give the actors the whole script. And so he was like, I, I, if you know the whole script, you know what scene will come after, but I kind of need you to just react wildly to the scene that you're in. And I go, that's good. That's, that's good. But it has received mixed reviews. People are not... A, a ton of people do not like this movie. You do not like this movie. No. No, I don't. In the same way that Damien Chazelle releasing a movie... A, a three-hour movie about classic... Not even classic Hollywood. About the turn of... From sound to... Or from silent to sound Hollywood. Starring Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. Pretty much anybody would have known that's a movie that Scott Lentz would have liked. Uh, in the same way, Alejandro Gonzalez in Yuritu releasing a movie almost guarantees that Christian's going to like it, but especially in this format where he's getting weird with it and commenting on, uh, obviously, some a lot of different themes, but also commenting specifically on the experience of, uh, you know, the immigrant experience. Uh, Christian, I know that that's something that you and your family can connect with in a way that mine can't. Uh, and so I have a lot of respect for... I have a lot of respect for that, because obviously not every movie has to be for every person and, and art is art and sometimes we get lost in assigning scores to things and giving out awards because a movie like Bardo can come out could have bombed the, at the box office not even go to Netflix streaming not get any awards attention so on and so forth and yet still be important and meaningful to, to you and the other people who have <laughs> liked it uh, it's just to me unfortunately um, I won't say that Inuritu is being totally self-indulgent here which I think a lot of critics have narrowed in on as their key complaint because I liked Babylon and there's a lot of indulgence in Babylon and I, I've liked other movies I mean even a movie like Apollo 10 and a half which nobody described as self-indulgent but is all about Linklater's childhood in the 60s like I, a lot of people return to either experiences of their life or key themes and impressions of their life for me I just got lost in the magical realism and the surrealism and then I just sit there for another hour and a half as, as it was too wild you what? It was too wild. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if it was too wild. I just, I, I, but I just got lost in the in the logic and, and what was happening. And um, there'd be jokes that that just didn't land for me and, and gave me this gave me an off-putting feel. Like there's a about one of his children. 
Uh, I'll say. A child who does not wish to be born, perhaps, we can say. That caused people to, We saw in the theater together, like, people laughed, you laughed, and I, I just kind of, like, <laughs> couldn't believe what I was seeing, you know? And there are moments where I don't think the whole movie is self-indulgent, but I think there are scenes that are where Inuritu is sort of asking for our pity. And I've loved some of his other movies. The guy's won two Best Director Oscars. His movie won Best Picture. He's made humongous hits. I just don't need to pity that guy. He, is, he has become so he's, successful. I don't think he's asking for your pity. I, don't, I, I, I just don't believe that. Like not not not. It's not, the moments where he's trying to engage with his critics and just kind of saying kind of like how, okay, to the critics that I, doesn't that didn't work. I don't. Th maybe he's trying to engage with his critics. I don't know. I don't see that because he is making a movie where the second it was released nationally in Mexico, it's like score across all critical pages shot up, which makes me think there is a theme here that people are connecting to that other people don't know because it, they haven't lived through it, which I can understand not being able to connect with that. The issue that I have with some people about this movie is that they are saying he is making a movie no one can connect with, which, which is, is not, false. That's false, yeah. And they, they are very much saying he's, he's doing stuff no one cares about. Um, some people have said that he he is being self-indulgent or saying F you to people. And I go, this is, a, this is a movie about a man who's deeply troubled. And maybe that means that he believes that he himself is deeply troubled. Maybe that means that just like he faced a critic in this movie, he, he is scared of critics. And he doesn't want to deal with it. Maybe it's saying that he mourns the loss of a child. Maybe it's saying that he doesn't know how to raise up his children. Maybe it's saying he's faced prejudice from people, from Mexicans who live in L.A. and Mexicans who live in Mexico. And I think all of those are things that if you were to tell me, not you, if someone is to tell me they don't fit together well for them, sure. But it's, it's I, I don't think it's like a... I don't think he's just trying to address critics. I think he's literally trying... No, 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 no. I, I think in a, as big and sprawling a movie as Bardo is, sometimes you just latch on to different elements of it. And I will say, there, there's a lot to like. Like like you said, that the lead performance from Daniel Jimenez um, Cacho is fantastic. And there's a scene where he gets to reconnect with his late father. And... That's, uh, Cacho's that's face kind of funny. and head is like superimposed onto a, a child actor, I would assume. <laughs> and it's this very blunt way of obviously putting the character in, his, in the form of his childhood self, speaking to his father as he remembered him. But that scene still totally worked for me. And I thought that was really touching. In the midst of this movie that I was really struggling with, there was something for me to latch onto. And even some of the ideas that he's working with, I've found thought-provoking it's just that the way that he communicated them didn't work for me and that's sure. what and again these are movies these are works of art and especially for people like the a lot of the directors who are appearing at the top of our lists who sure have commercial intentions but also are artists they're trying to do things i didn't like bardo but i sure. respect the the artistry behind it and, and the attempt to try i didn't like tar but but todd field is a very gifted individual and I mean, I would say the same for my guy, Damien Chazelle. You know, a lot of people have not liked Babylon. A lot of negative reviews for it. But where the swings and misses felt like strikeouts to some, it was 
home runs for me. So that that's sort of where I landed on Barnum. I think I came out of the theater a little hot, and I, I, <laughs> I tried to be funny and yell at you about how much it sucked. But on reflection, it, I, I think I'm... I've grown a little distasteful of the people who are truly hateful of it. And obviously, Inuritu himself, he has his critics. He has people who don't like him or his movies. <laughs> so what are you going to do when someone didn't like Birdman or The Revenant? They didn't like his movies sure. before that. They're, of course, they're going to be primed to, to dislike this movie. But I, I just do think specifically with... Like, if you don't like The Revenant, I kind of get that. Like, it's long... It is exhausting. I really like it. I love the craft in that I movie. I also really like The Revenant. <laughs> like I, I wasn't mad that Leo won an Oscar for that movie, like some people. I, I, I think he was great in that movie. Yeah. But I, I there's in, in this movie, it, it just feels like a lot of people have been ignorant when they've been speaking about it. But that's it. That's 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 Bardo. It's streaming on Netflix. Honestly, I think I like. Yes, I wholly recommend people watch it. It's not you know an easy watch. It's not like you're watching Looney Tunes. It's definitely one that I might say is better to watch with people in the room together because then you have you can kind of immediately sit there and talk about it with a beer, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, and and it's a movie that I think works well on Netflix because you can pause and be like, "WTF is going on?" Yeah. Alrighty, folks, time for my number two of the year. A familiar movie to fans of this show. My it's number seven. Christian's number seven. We finally gotten back to it. We skipped over it earlier in the show. But it's Top Gun Maverick. Everybody saw this coming. I lost my mind for this movie when it came out earlier this year. And I don't even really spill too much more uh, too much more audio about it. I think the just the return to a franchise, or I guess the sequel to a movie from 30-some years ago, could have gone disastrously. And the you know, the the mad madman stunt work of Tom Cruise, plus a very game new supporting cast. And a really touching turn from Val Kilmer returning to his role as Iceman. Plus the, the fantastic direction of Joseph Kaczynski here just gave us a, a blockbuster for the ages, in my opinion. I think this year we started to get a lot of really, really exciting big-budget blockbuster movies after a couple years turning down uh, from, from COVID and the, the effects thereafter. Top of Maverick itself sat on ice for a while because Cruz knew it wouldn't make sense to... Cruz and the other producers knew it wouldn't make sense to release it onto streaming. This movie had to be seen on a big screen. Having seen it twice on a big screen, I wholeheartedly agree. And again, just kind of in brief, I think Maverick is a perfect blend of fantastically thrilling action, plus a, a story that, while not deeply complex, is beautifully simple and, uh, and communicates well what it's trying to get across, and even has shown some growth for, for Pete Mitchell, the character. The last thing I'll add, just as a reminder, one of my favorite pieces of it, I think it's just a fun way to look at Cruz's whole career, because he's one of the, the few people who really is living or dying by the theatrical experience right now, refusing to go down easy, uh, just like how in the movie, the, the higher-ups at the Navy want to replace people with drone pilots, and Maverick is all about the, the pilot at the controls there, the actual cockpit, so... There's more that we could say here, but Christian, obviously, it's your number seven of the year, so why don't you monologue on it for a little bit? It's not a movie that requires you to do any thinking. It's a movie that requires you to sit down, lay back, and breathe it in. It's a beautifully simple movie that's done exceedingly well. The cinematography, honestly, the sound, the sound's like the greatest thing in this movie. When those jets fly but, past the camera, you can yeah. feel it in your chest. 
it's 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 just so enjoyable. It's a simple plot. It's a simple romance. It's a simple conflict. It's an epic action scene at the end. So it it's lovely. It, it it's that there's not much that I can say about it. It's just that some I mean somewhere along the way, like we forgot the fact that stories can just be simple and can just do new things for you to you. It can just be amazing in that way. I gotta say, Christian, I'm I'm invested in Top Gun Maverick's upcoming performance at the Oscars. It's starting to get award. It has been getting awards attention for some time now. You know, I'm sure love and technical categories. It's got a chance at a Best Picture nomination. I'm sure some people are going to be calling for Cruz to get his first Best Actor nomination in a long time. But the only thing I really want to know is Lady Gaga going to win her second Oscar for Best Original Song? Because Hold My Hand, it's a banger. I don't think so. I kind of, I, I kind of want it to be not to, not to. <laughs> okay, I would have no complaints there. <laughs> Another truly great song that's more integral than the plot <laughs> to the plot. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there, I think this movie is going to live on too. There's a lot of uh, love for dogfight football. There's okay. love for the the test, which is doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. It's super stupid. Which is wonderful <laughs> for Cruz pulling off the the difficult maneuvers. He's asking his uh, Top Gun graduates to perform. Jennifer Connelly, whose character does not make sense. She's just a good-looking fifty-year-old who owns a bar. Jennifer Connelly. We don't know where yeah. her money's coming from, but she owns a boat. Her dad was an admiral, Christian, who's very very important military official. Those guys are well compensated. I don't, I, I, I don't know how much a, a Navy all, Admiral makes. That's all I'll say. I, I think her character makes sense, but it's like, how did you get here in this way? That mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. <laughs> when we meet her in the movie, all is well. Um, and I mean, Glenn Powell. Just Glenn Powell, what a guy. I want, I, I'm sad to Glenn because I didn't see Devotion, which I should have, with him and Jonathan Majors, two guys that I uh, have big man crushes on. Should have seen that one, but shout out to my guy Glenn, also in Apollo 10 and a half in a really ridiculous role. I'm a fan of that guy. Christian, we're moving on. Mm-hmm. Is it time for our for our yeah. shared number one? Not, no, we're not, we, don't, we don't have a shared number one. It's we don't have a shared, shared number one, but we're, we're sharing our number ones. Yes. It's finally time. It's time. Christian, you get to go first. Hit me. There's one for the road. Listeners, you have not seen this movie. No, in fact, very few people have. Unfortunately. Very few people in the world have seen this movie. Outside the great country of Thailand, very few people have seen it. It is a Thai movie. It came out in 2021 on at the Sundance Film Festival. It finally got a Thailand release date this year. And then it was released in Netflix Asia, apparently. I don't know if all Asia has the same Netflix, but that's what the on- online says. And then... Um, it was submitted for consideration for Best International Feature at the Oscars for next year, and I thought maybe this is the only year I'm going to be able to include it in my top 20. Um, it is a buddy road trip comedy drama movie about two friends. Let's let's actually start it. Boss is a bartender in Manhattan, and he is a womanizer, and he lives in a massive penthouse bought by his family. Sure. He gets a call from Ood, his friend from Thailand. Who says, come back to Thailand. Boss says, no. Ud says, I have leukemia. I have decided to stop doing chemotherapy. I need you to come back to Thailand. Boss says, okay. This is the funniest thing, honestly. He shuts down his bar for a month, which is a detail that we get we don't really get to till later in the movie, but he's just like, yeah, you know, family's paying for the bar. Let me just shut it down for a month. But sure, goes back to Thailand. Ud says, 
Hey, I have been saying goodbye to everyone on my phone contacts list and deleting their number after I say goodbye. I want closure. There are four people left because I want to say goodbye to them in person. You are one of them. The other three are my ex-girlfriends. And so they drive from girlfriend to girlfriend. He doesn't tell them he has leukemia. He just tells them everything that he can. It is a story about mortality. It is a story, honestly, about drinking. This, this entire movie feels like you know, it's a drunken stupor at times. Um, watching it again yesterday, I'm not going to lie, um, y'all, I watched it in a very difficult manner. In a very, very difficult manner was I able to procure it. But um, anyway, saw it again yesterday. It's deeply flawed. <laughs> Soap opera melodramatic to a fault. And yet, the bromance between the two of them and how much it kind of asks you to dig up past trauma that you are trying to beat away and how much it's asking you to deal with issues in your life and when at times it's saying you shouldn't you shouldn't deal with issues in your life always sometimes it's better to leave them alone it's also, like, funnily enough, this is a movie that I, I, I think I can trace back me taking bartending classes to watching bartenders in this movie. Yo, the bartenders in this movie look sick. They look, they're awesome. They're doing tricks and flips and the camera's, like, twirling around with them. Oh, also, one of the best things about this movie is that Boss makes him three drinks and the names of them, well, the, the theme and names are after his three ex-girlfriends. For him to try. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Nice. Um, I don't. I it's it's one of the it's one of the best things I've ever seen. It's one of the best experiences I've ever had seeing anything ever. I DM'd this director on Instagram. He said hi. I'm like, God bless. Thank you. <laughs> um, and he's made other movies that have been celebrated in Thailand. He actually made a special on Netflix about the Thai. It's called I think Thai Cave Rescue. So it's just 13 lives, but from an actual Thai filmmaker. Um, and I don't know if you'll ever get like a breakthrough I don't, into into the U.S. He doesn't need it. Like he's wonderful. He, he, you know, if he continues to make movies that are successful in Thailand, all power to him. But um, this is the one time that... This is the one time that, you know, I, I can bring it up so that if anyone ever stumbles upon it, they can. Uh, this is also a movie that Scott said he was not interested in watching yesterday. I was going to tell that story, Christian. I was okay, going to paint you out to be a real sweetheart, and now you're being mean to me. I was going to say, folks, Christian, out of the goodness of his heart, invited me to watch this with some other people he had invited over, and I stayed home to watch Bros with my wife. So, sorry that I haven't seen one for the road, but... Boy, ain't that Billy Eichner a funny guy, eh? Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I do sincerely hope that One for the Road is able to get some more eyes on it. I was sort of tooling around while you were sharing your, your thoughts on it. Um, and between IMDb and Letterboxd, two of the most popular apps and you know, websites out there for logging movies you've watched, there is just over, it looks like, 
5,000 people between those two apps who've seen this. And I'm I do one. Know. Chris is one of them. And uh, even, even so, I mean, really hope that it can... Just knowing that you love this movie, I hope that it, it becomes easier to watch so one day we can watch it together. Uh, but just not when we're binge-watching things, trying to get caught up for this episode. <laughs> but, you know, I also am happy because this is a beautiful choice for a favorite movie of the year. And even as you acknowledge that it has flaws and it, there are things about it you can look at objectively and say, you know, this isn't necessarily working the best for me or for the movie. Sometimes that doesn't matter. And you just got to pick the heart wants what the heart wants. It's it's your favorite movies. It's not your your argument for the best movies of the year. It's your favorite movies. And so, I, I you know, I'm glad. I'm happy that you and this director have a budding Instagram friendship. I hope he you are able to work on his film set one day. Uh, the di- director goes by Baz Pumpadia, and uh, um, this is a movie that is produced by Wong Kar Wai, who is known very well internationally. Okay, okay. did not know that. The, yes. the great Hong Kong filmmaker, Wong Kar Wai. So, yeah. Keep an eye out if you have Netflix Asia. Um, have fun trying to find the correct country <laughs> that this is in. But, yeah. One for the road. One for the road. Alrighty, folks. Speaking of one for the road, we've only got one movie left to discuss, and that is my favorite movie of the year. If you are a fan of the show, you might be wondering where this movie has been because it was on my top five of the year so far list, but it is now here at number one on all movies for the year for me, and that is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. A movie that I saw in theaters during its initial run as everybody was celebrating the heck out of it on its way to A24's first release with over $100 million at the global box office. And that I revisited only a couple of weeks ago to see if I was crazy or if I had overblown my hype for it. Or if all of the fans who have really become obsessed with it and started tweeting at critics who don't include it on their top 10 list of the year. Uh, I wanted to make sure I wasn't falling in with that group <laughs> uh, without, without enough knowledge. And let me say... Watch this movie a second time. It really solidified my opinion of it. And it probably wouldn't be my number one if I didn't rewatch it. I found myself, once again, genuinely moved by uh, Michelle Yeoh and Stephanie Su and Kiwi Kwan, who form the key family at the center here of this story. Uh, of course, Michelle Yeoh and uh, Kiwi Kwan playing the married couple who are running their laundromat together and trying to do their taxes and make sure they don't get shut down by the IRS during this audit while also trying to parent their adult daughter, uh, played by Stephanie Sue. That's Joy. And Joy is trying to find her place in the world. She has a girlfriend, and knows, although her parents are okay with it, her grandfather, who has moved to live with the family now, is not okay with it, and so that is a little bit of a family secret. And she is struggling with that, and struggling to carve out her own path, and knowing that she's had conflict with her parents. And of course, all of this goes to hell in a handbasket as a multiversal adventure breaks out as Waymond, who's the husband, a different version of Waymond comes to visit Evelyn, who's Michelle Yeoh's character, and pulls her into this journey as they try to defend themselves from the multiversal villain Jobu Tupaki, who, of course, it's widely known at this point, is also played by Stephanie Sue, and um, it is a manifestation of joy from the multiverse. Everything Everywhere All at Once is a moving drama. It's a thoughtful reflection on growing up with immigrant parents. It is hilarious. It is a wacky Looney Tunes-esque action movie and it is a lot of other things all at once and for me again thinking about just what is a favorite movie it, sometimes it's the one that makes you cry the most sometimes it makes you laugh the most sometimes the one that 
just gets you talking the most and, and sharing it with other people. And Everything Everywhere for me, that, that's kind of what it became. It's just this movie that I am so excited is out there and exists in the world. And I think is also a, a beautiful example of what can be done even with smaller budgets. Um, what can be done with actors who are at very different points in the career, whether it's Michelle Yeoh, who's obviously been a movie star forever, but hasn't always gotten her leading lady chances in Hollywood, not since she left, um, not since she left the Chinese film industry, and Kihui Kwan, who most people will know as Short Round from Indiana Jones or know him from his part in The Goonies. He took a long break from acting because he couldn't get roles, and now he's back and might be winning an Oscar <laughs> if some of the prognosticators are right. And Stephanie Su, who uh, maybe people might recognize, she's had some TV roles and some other Maeve. minor movie roles. May from everything, or Marvelous, Marvelous Mrs. Mrs. Maisel, and and she she dominates this movie almost like she and Yo going toe to toe. That's a nice rhyme there. Uh, again, my favorite on-screen pair of the year probably, and and I just love her performance in this movie so much both the 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 sadness that joy carries at the beginning of the movie completely giving way to the wild energy that joe butapaki has messing with the multiverse bringing chaos in her wake and I, I just this is a movie that i love with my whole heart and watching this again confirmed the things that what i felt when i saw it in the theater were right and even though I will never support people who love a movie but then start making fun of other people for not liking a movie, unless it's me making fun of Christian for not liking Indiana Jones or The Matrix. That's always a lot. But I don't approve of fans of this movie going on Twitter and getting annoyed at critics who don't have it on their list. I think that's lame. Even so, it's, it's my favorite movie of the year. Uh, it's, it's the one that I'm just the most excited about being out there and existing in the world. In the same way that uh, The Green Knight was my favorite movie of 2021, Everything Everywhere filled that spot for me in 2022 and shout out to me for being the most basic white boy that's back-to-back -back years with an a24 movie at the top of my list is so, that a white boy thing um maybe it's not a basic or it's not white like boy a thing. hipster thing no i mean hipster's not really a thing anymore we, we left that in the 2010s it's more of like uh <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry you should have known christian it that's people talk about that but it, it definitely is a24 definitely caters to 20 somethings late teens, you know, early 30s. That's, that's kind of like young millennials and Gen Z. That's their wheelhouse, I would say. So I am part of the, the Target demo, I'm sure. But oh, that's a lot about everything everywhere. Jamie Lee Curtis. I didn't even mention Jamie Lee Curtis. The great Jamie Lee Curtis playing Deirdre Bobirdra. Good grief. Christian, do you have any thoughts on everything everywhere? Notably absent from your 1 through 20, but I know you weren't like a hater. I, I really like this movie. There's like a theme that I doesn't always logically makes sense to me. It, it, it would be probably my 20 to 30 range. Um, it's a phenomenal Michelle Yeoh performance. It's honestly, that to me is what anchors a ton of this because she's asked to be so many things, action star and superstar and dramatic individual and heartwarming mother and a broken woman. Um, and she nails every single one of those. Kiwi Khan is fantastic in that supporting role. Stephanie Zhu can't take your eyes off for Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, Great. Just just thinking about how the Daniels, who I didn't mention that, but Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, a.k.a. the Daniels, directed this movie, included a scene where Jamie Lee Curtis and Michelle Yeoh, two, two of the truly great actresses of our time, wearing hot dog prop fingers, dancing with each other. And in that moment, you're not laughing, you're feeling tender because of the context of that scene. Really beautifully sums up the ethos of this movie. I've sort of 
come to describe it as a very millennial movie, which might, I don't know, that might strike an annoying note for some people, but with these two guys being in their mid-30s, obviously they are millennials, and the scatterbrained experience of watching this movie, the, the drastic tonal shifts from zany comedy into heartstring pulling, I think is something that is, it's not unique to millennials, but it's something that all of us understand, having grown up on the internet, being able to scroll on Instagram or Twitter and now TikTok and see the ways that we can go from laughing at some ridiculous joke to lamenting at whatever political story is ticking us off that day to seeing a, a becoming jealous of a friend who's doing well in life and <laughs> and then seeing a sports score. You know, we're all familiar with this being stretched thin by our experience on the internet. And this feels so key to everything everywhere. That experience of being a person in this world, uh, the multiversal, the multiverse that they have created and implemented here. I think speaks to that. Uh, and, and so I, I think too, it just, it's hard because obviously I'm not, I can't speak to the, the Asian immigrant experience, but I know that's part of Daniel Kwan's story and it's part of what inspired him to write this with Daniel Shiner. And so I know too, it's, we were talking about Bardo, the, the immigrant experience that's key to that story and, and key to so many of its fans loving it. It's just, it is interesting how sometimes uh, a similar theme told differently works um, for, for different audiences. And obviously, Everything Everywhere has really struck a chord with a lot of people, even folks who, like myself, the, the immigration in my family's history goes a lot further back than I'm able to know. So one last little note there on Everything Everywhere. Definitely a movie that's going to get some awards attention, already has received nominations from various bodies and groups, and we'll see how it does later on this year. But Christian, Bro, yes. what were we going to say? We're approaching two hours. We need to cut this. <laughs> we are approaching two hours, and that is our list. So Christian... Why don't you quickly run down just your 10 through 1? We'll leave the 11 through 20s at the beginning of the show. All right. Uh, 10 through 1. So at 10, I had Violet Night. At 9, I had RRR. Are you going from memory? Yes. Okay. <laughs> at 8, I had Thor, Love, and Thunder. At 7, I had Top Gun Maverick. At 6, I had Cha-Cha Real Smooth. At 5, I had The Fablemans. At 4, I had Avatar The Way of Water. At 3, I had Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. At two, I had Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. At one, I had One for the Road. Well done, Christian. Excellent memory. I'm not as smart as you. I have to look at this. <laughs> at ten, I had Decision to Leave. At nine, The Northman. Eight, Athena. Seven, Babylon. Six, The Banshees of Inishirin. Five, The Batman. Four, Avatar, The Way of Water. Three, Tar. Two, Top Gun Maverick. And number one, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Christian, we basically don't have any time left, but I do want to ask, anything that was not mentioned on the show thus far that you wanted to give just a quick little honorable mention to, quick little shout out? That was, was I, I I, Glass Onion we mentioned. Yeah. I liked Glass Onion. Me too. Turning Red was on my top five of the year so far. Didn't make my list here, but I'm still a fan of that movie. I liked Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I, I have not caught up with uh, Pinocchio yet. There, there's That was high on the list for me to catch up with. And as I was check, crossing things off and checking boxes, I just didn't get there. That and a few others that I'm really sad to have missed. Um, but I, I'm still happy with the list we had here. I wanted to watch Nope again. I liked that more than you. But then it started appearing on a lot of critics' top 10 lists. A lot of people giving it nice reviews on Letterboxd and other sources. Maybe you want to revisit that. We'll get to it eventually. And I like Don't Worry Darling, even though nobody else did. Shout out to me and the, the other eight people who like that one. Christian, that is our show. We That's our show? It. Top list of the year. We made it. All, all the talking. It took two sessions of recording, but we made it. 
And of course, now that we have gotten this list in the books, Cool. So next week, we're we going to be to... talking about Nora Ephron. We're going to do this month on Nora Ephron. And the first one we're going to do is Silkwood, which is which is available at your local library. Um, not streaming anywhere. And we're going to look at her Academy Award nominated screenplays. Um, yeah, that's that's going to be it's going to be what we do this month. Um, awesome. And like follow me on Instagram and both of us on Letterboxd and the show on Twitter um yeah there are no final words really to be said about the show so excited for 2023 with y'all all right pardoning that interruption a couple things you forgot number one please send us your thoughts on the top 10 films or your favorite films of 2022 <laughs> hug your happy christian to cinema drip podcast at gmail.com we are regularly checking that inbox and would love to see your favorites if we miss one that you love maybe after sun which neither of us mentioned but a lot of people love maybe you love nope whereas we did not include it Maybe if you got some other movie out there that you wanted to bring up, send us an email, cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. Of course, follow myself and the show on Twitter, Chris on Instagram, part. both of us on Letterboxd, Move where on. we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Christian, you interrupted. You brought this on yourself. And leave us a rating and review. We need those to help this show grow, and we want to see it grow in 2023. So please do that. We appreciate you loyal listeners who are out there listening along to all two hours of the show. Thank you. We love you very much. Christian has no final thoughts. I've got nothing left to say. It's 2023, baby. Nora Afron's up next, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.